This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Horns of Odin. Horns of Odin is a family-run company which specialises in drinking horns and horn mugs. Every horn is sanded, polished and carved right here in our own workshop. And we line each one with a full-grade beeswax so you get a nice clean taste every time. We also have a selection of copper and brass jewellery, leatherwork and our own blacksmith, all handmade right here in the UK. We're giving an exclusive discount to listeners of the podcast. So all you've got to do is simply add the code HORNS10 now that's Horns10 to grab 10% off your entire order at checkout. So why not head over to the website www.hornsvoden.com to see the full collection of our products. We also recently hit 30,000 Instagram followers and we'll be holding a huge raffle really soon. We've had tons of amazing prizes donated and every single penny that we raise will be donated to charity. So if you just pop over to Instagram and follow us at hornsvoden.com, as soon as the charity goes live, we'll let you all know. Right, let's jump into the show. Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farrand, co-owner of the company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello. And we have a, a very special guest with us today, and we are joined by Oliver S. Tier, um, most probably commonly known for, for being one of the lead vocalists and founder of the uh, band Fawn. So how, how are you doing? Thanks for inviting me. No, thank, thank you for taking the time to uh, to join us. It's a pleasure. I'm really interested what's what's going to happen to to nerd a little around about some mythology and maybe something different. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what we're going to do. <laughs> um, actually, uh, Oliver, I am so you guys found. I I think for at least for someone like me, you're sort of you're some of the people who started the whole uh, you know wave of. Uh, of, of like medieval music and, um, you know, popularizing uh, medieval music. Like you, you guys just started back in the, what, what was it, like late 90s? Yeah, um, kind of like 99 here. Yeah, and uh, I would love to hear a little bit about like what was the scene like back then because, you know, nowadays there are so many different bands and there are new genres coming out and, and all that stuff. But, but what was it like back then in the late 90s and early 2000s? Well, to be friendly, I, I um, have a little secret. I uh, Before I did fawn, I had another um, profession. I was a juggler and a fire artist on medieval markets. Oh, wow. cool. Yes, so I, I had uh, uh, I had this, uh, how do you call them, uh, funny pants on, like this really tight pants, mm -hmm. uh -huh. and uh, did some really stupid stuff, but I enjoyed it. I was... Uh, I was still at school, and so uh, people invited me. Hey, you like medieval stuff? You like music? You want to join? And so I spent really seven years while I did uh, finishing my school and while I did my studies. I spent at medieval markets and did some funny shows, like circus shows, uh, fire shows, and stuff. So like a modern, a modern day jester almost. Exactly, and this was so helpful. So now, or even at the beginning of Horn, if I made a stupid mistake on stage, that was no problem because I know many stupid jokes if a ball falls. <laughs> that was more important than being skilled at music, maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so this is my background. And then I, um, and back then there was a lot of medieval bands already here. So the whole scene started in the 70s in Germany, I would say, with a, with a folk movement. And, but... 
when I joined in the beginning of the 90s, I joined the medieval scene, it was either early music or it was like this uh, kind of drinking music with bagpipes and really a drinking vibe. And what we really started here was to go really into content, to say we want to have some mythology happening in the songs, dig deeper, even get some spiritual aspects and um, work a lot with the lyrics. Right, yeah. Yeah, because they... Yeah, that uh, that resonates a lot with what I what I sort of am familiar with from the late '90s, and um, you know, you have like these bands like uh, Corvus Corax and an uh, Extremo, and and uh, you know that are that are playing you know the typical well-known drinking songs and and that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, no, so, so you guys are actually some of the first ones who start getting like really creative with. Um, you know, making this music, this style of music. Other people have been also very creative, of course, but it was never my thing. You know, I like a nice glass of wine, no problem, but I, I don't <laughs> want to sing about a wine or beer because I think it's better to drink it. And so, <laughs> but I'm I'm very interested in mythology and spiritual spirituality in a way. So I really I wanted to dig deep. Where does it come from? And also, I made my own experiences. Uh, nearly religious experience to really uh, searching for some roots and I thought of course this is giving me the inspiration I want to sing, uh, sing songs about. I mean I think it's absolutely fascinating I don't know whether maybe I wasn't in the right circles growing up but over over here in the UK it didn't seem to exist it, we just didn't seem to have anything that was remotely similar to what to what you had I know you said obviously the I guess it had been around since the 70s, but it just seems to have completely dis disappeared in the UK. I can't think of sort of anybody that, that I know that does anything remotely like what you guys do. Yeah, of, of course. I'm a big fan of English music, actually, I have to admit. So like uh, Steel Eye Span or something or just Fairport Convention, they did some great stuff in the 70s. But in the UK, it went a little into rock, I have the feeling. Yeah. But here, people went more to the roots. They said, no, we want to reduce it even more and only have the bagpipe left over. Mm. Yeah, I think certainly over here, the I guess like the eighties especially was was the prime time for rock music. You know, you you had some huge rock bands coming out of the UK, but nothing along the along the lines of you know like that pagan folk type style. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean we we had that in Germany too, right? Um, um, different big rock bands, but uh, but what Germany also has uh, France too, um, the whole, you know, Rhineland area and, and Italy is a lot of, um, you know, remaining medieval environments that, you know, you know, give you the opportunity to, to go, let's have a medieval festival, right? Um, it's, I mean, it, that's the same in Scandinavia with the Viking Age, right? We have reconstructed Viking Age villages and so on that gives you the opportunity to have a Viking Age festival. And that's how, you know, you have a center and a reoccurring event for, you know, all of these, you know, things to sort of blossom, basically, and, and then start uh, moving in all these interesting directions. Um, and I don't think the, I, I'm not sure if the UK picked up on, on that that early. Uh, maybe that's the difference. Uh, I think maybe we just uh, tried to go as modern as possible and, I kind of left everything, left everything else behind because you do see such a difference between like the UK. I think the UK almost went the same, same with like the USA, very linked in kind of like the music styles. Whereas 
you can definitely tell the difference between kind of like what comes out in the UK and the rest of Europe. Yeah, yeah, no, there, there's something about that. And I, I mean, to be fair, uh, Scandinavia, I think, in culturally has been following the UK a lot um, uh, over the last 50 uh, years, even longer, perhaps. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, nowadays it, it looks like there, there's sort of a, that, you know, it's it's coming together in, in all the different regions um, under this sort of this headline of like uh, medieval or you know like uh, pre pre Christian prehistoric uh, Europe basically like you're, you're seeing that all over the place. Yeah, it's the time where people are really searching for the roots. I think globalization has really good aspects, but of course, the more we globalize and the more we digitalize, people think, "Hey, where's our roots?" And I think this is happening all over the world and. So this is why we travel. We give concerts in South America now, in USA, in Brazil, and everywhere people have the feeling, hey, the older, the better, or the, the, the more true, tr truthful, in a way, the better, I have the feeling. Yeah. Absolutely. I think we've spoke about that a few times on here. Yeah. You know, people have just become so detached from, from their origins and from, like you say, from the roots that it seems now people really are starting to look back and, and try and find where, you know, where they came from and, and recapture some of that old sort of heritage. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, it's, it's beautiful to definitely to see you guys see you guys doing that. Well, thank you. So for me, it was very logical, and I have to admit, like, um, if I wouldn't have been in the medieval scene, I think I never would have made it as a musician. This is also so I'm really realistic there because it's it at my peak. There was like at the peak of the scene here, there was six to eight hundred events a year in Germany. Wow. So every small village had a medieval market to celebrate their 12, uh, 1200th anniversary, for example. Yeah, that's definitely something that's been lost lost in the UK. I mean, we have maybe a handful of those old markets a year, let alone you know, six, over 600. You know, it's, it's, it's so funny. It's so funny because in Scandinavia, there's like there is no village with respect for itself that does not have a Viking market. Yeah. <laughs> but it's so, so easy, it's, you know, it's, it's so easy to do one. It's just get a, get a little linen yeah. and just wrap it around the, the signs on the street and just yeah have a, have a beer. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. It, it's honestly such a shame that, that like it's like saying the UK that just doesn't it just doesn't happen. I mean, there may be like a handful a year and it, it, it is a shame to lose that side of things and people I guess the majority of people like probably aren't interested in that anymore well I th I, we work together actually with the medieval babes there's a, there's a group from England being really busy there oh wow yeah yeah and I have to say I'm really inspired there is a lot of like nice uh, small uh, hippie festivals in South uh, South England that really inspired me also I have to admit because also being there, seeing this, uh, there was a lot of this uh, new age traveling community living in vans and something in the 90s. And also there I saw for the first time, like uh, combining electronic music with instruments on stage. Because this was also a thing founded in the uh, beginning of 2000, I think. We started because we worked together with a friend and we had so many tracks and so many percussion instruments, like shakers and wooden sticks and something. We thought, how do we get it on stage? We would have needed like 10 musicians. And so we had a friend and he started to just make music with us because he was living in the same house and it just felt really organic. But then came the moment where we played a big festival. This was the Wave Gothic Treffen on the medieval market. And we had the feeling, no, you have to come along. It sounds so much better together. So he was on stage on the medieval market with a laptop. 
And <laughs> so what we had to do is that we have to hide it somewhere. So he had an old basket where he puts his dirty laundry in. So we used the basket <laughs> and the holding. So his hands were in the basket. And like this, we went on stage and people, first they thought this is electronic beats with medieval instruments. They were kind of mixed feelings. But after a few years, they accepted it because we simply said, you know, the sounds are organic and we cannot put our songs on stage otherwise. So do you try to, would you prefer to stay away from the electronic side if you could? Or is it now that you're happy to kind of like take it on board and do both? Um, I, the guy with us, he's a, he's a really experimental musician. He does a lot of theater productions as well. But he hates it when I say it, or another band member says it needs to sound organic. So this is his his uh, his limit. Whatever he does, it needs to sound like a real instrument. And we mostly work with uh, with real samples. Like for example, a bass drum we use a lot. He had a lighter and was hitting it on a wooden chair. And these are the sounds we're using to to make beats. So we try to have the origin of our music uh, from from natural material. Yeah. So it's not. So even though it's electronic, it's still it's it's just a a natural sound being played electronically rather than an actual sort of man-made sound. I mean, electronic sound. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, but I think I have other bands. I know even more of the bands they use backing tracks because they have somebody the mixing engineer being at the mixing desk and playing the mixing tracks, uh, play uh, backing tracks. But for me, this is too uh, too fixed because then you have to stay to a fixed arrangement. And they have one guy on stage who mm. does it and who can interfere with you when you're playing solo. This is much better. But, of course, the downside is you have a guy standing on stage with a computer. And this is weird for a medieval band. But for me, it's nicer because it gives more creativity on stage while using electronic um, yeah, materials. Right, yeah. And this is, you know, this is the, uh, the, the, the general problem that you have when you do reenactment, yeah. right? Um, whether it, it doesn't matter if you're the musician on stage or you're the the guy dressed as a Viking selling, uh, you know, horns of Odin horns or whatever, right? Like you always have uh, somewhere where you have to like, um, you know, hide a modern aspect, right? <laughs> like, I mean, this is this is always the, the case. Like, um, uh, I mean, I've I so. Uh, background story for me is that i started you know going to viking markets back in the mid 90s i think like you know and i have like always had some kind of place in danish viking reenactment um and and yeah that's a, that was like was like the thing is like when the market opens and you hide all of the things that you uh, <laughs> that the customers can't see because it has to appear authentic and all that stuff but you still you know you still need to keep a a plastic jug of water somewhere because um you know <laughs> it's just easier that way <laughs> well certainly when we when we trade at kind of like the medieval festivals you there's some things that you just need to have like a till because i don't want somebody walking yeah. off with all my money <laughs> or <laughs> exactly. even like to, to be able to take card payments you know sometimes you get the the jokes of like oh well they wouldn't have had phones and it's like yeah but you wouldn't have had a credit card with contactless to pay for it either but you know we kind of have to blur the lines a little bit if they would have had a really good sleeping bag back in the medieval times they would have used it for sure you know <laughs> because it's very oh, oh yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah that's it it's like when i have to stay overnight i'm 
I'm definitely, you know, using the best quality things I can. No, and this is what I like sometimes about other countries, also Germany and also in Scandinavia, they can be very narrow-minded, like this this big thing, you have to be authentic, it's, it's sometimes a pain in the ass. And then we came to the USA, oh, yeah, or, yeah or we just, uh, uh, in Holland, for example, the Netherlands, when people have big wings and their crazy costumes, it's also refreshing in a way. Because um, yeah. to just express yourself. Of course, I like it when you want a nice market, biking market to look really authentic. But sometimes also it's good to just totally break out and be easy. No, I, I agree with that. That's a, re that's a really good point. You know, sometimes also this way of being authentic is like, oh, um, we have only found like one dress from the Viking Age. So everybody's wearing that yeah. same dress. And it's like, hmm, you, you don't think that there was like, any any kind of creativity happening in the Viking Age, <laughs> just like a, a tiny bit different version of that dress out there somewhere. Um, you know, those kinds of things, you're, you're totally right that, yeah, it get, does get narrow-minded sometimes. It really depends on who's putting on the market and uh, also how closely those markets are associated with, like, museum institutions. Like, some sometimes the, uh, the museum institutions can be very strict. Right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, Moscow, um, which is uh, what I think the oldest and largest Viking market. Um, it is from my hometown, Aarhus, um, so just south of there by the big museum, Viking Age Museum that they have there, um, or prehistoric museum. Uh, they, at one point, they asked all the Viking reenactors who were coming there um, to, that, that they, uh, they, they wanted to, implement a rule that said that they couldn't use modern materials for their tents so that they would all have to get like flax weaved tent or something like that, a woolen tent. And that's like really expensive. Oh it's, it's like, yeah. <laughs> you, you think that these guys could like afford that? <laughs> like, how does that work? Nobody yeah, sees the difference there. Yeah. That's a little unfair. I mean, we, we've had it before with some of the reenactment groups where, you know, they, they count the, the numbers of stitches in in the garments and it's like well we found them with this many stitches so every y'all should have that it's like yeah but wow. these are these are human beings like some of them will have, have been really careful and done you know more maybe more stitches and some were probably quite lazy and did it really fast and did less it's like you can't just go by what you found no, I think sometimes I understand for reenactment purpose that you want to find out how things were used. And this is really for scientific purpose, I understand. But looking at the music again, for example, old music were mostly really high pitched. It was much simpler to have small instruments. And so a lot of music was high pitched back then. But our mm. modern ears nowadays are used to massive sounds and basses. And you cannot just really attract people with only high-pitched music. Of course, back then they heard maybe two times a year live music. But nowadays, of course, we have modern ears. And you have to find a combination to also that people still like the music you do. And if it's fully authentic, it's yeah. very difficult. Yeah. No, that's that's such a good point. Um, I mean, coming from the researcher's perspective, um, like for me, the, the interesting thing is I've always just been interested in, like, how did people actually live? What was their reality? What were their experiences? And this is, you're making such a good point here because um, as modern humans, like we have noise everywhere, you know, and, and uh, also a lot of like, you know, deeper noise. It's a lot of 
um, engine noises, for instance, are also uh, like the lower pitches, right? Um, and that this is just present in our lives all the time. You hear a car going by, you this plane, um, and that would not have existed back then. So you know, when you say modern ears, that actually that is that is a that means a lot. You know, to say that. Like the way that we are used to hearing sound in so many different ways is completely different from uh, somebody. Well, just like three, four hundred years ago, actually. Yeah. yeah, I think I think quiet is now a very uncommon thing. You know, if you if you actually experience silence, it's almost it's it's uncomfortable because you're just not you, you're not used to it. I know I'm certainly not. There's you know there's there's music there's things all around all the time. You know, if, even if I get in the car to go for a five minute drive, you put the music on. There's always something there in, in the background. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I mean, it, it's, I think it says a lot that, you know, here in Colorado, this is one of the, um, this region, the Rocky mountains and the, the deserts that we have and all that stuff around. It's one of the lesser populated parts of the U S and you still have to go really far away to actually escape noise in one way or another like you know you can you can go to a a small community in, in i don't know the the desert in new mexico and that's where you you get quiet <laughs> but, <laughs> i just came from there because we did some songwriting and we have a medieval inn some friends of us have in east germany and this is a region i don't know why but there's also no airplanes you hear nothing and this is so good we spent like a week there last week to just write songs and to enjoy this. Also, internet connection is not good, nearly no phone connection. And it's really helpful to really just disconnect mm -hmm. from society and just really write on songs. Absolutely. It's so it's so hard to do. It's so hard to do at the minute as well because we just become more and more attached to our phones and computers. We're so we're so used to. I mean, running a business, you know, I, I'm always on on my phone, whether it's on Instagram trying to post something new, post a new product or, you know, messaging people, try to get them on the podcast. You know, there's, there's a million different things that I have to, yeah. that I have to keep doing. Yeah. And it's almost like if, if I'm without my phone, it's, it's almost, I, I get the anxious anxiety from not having it. And it's really sad to, sad to have. So sometimes it's nice to try and put it down and just, just leave it out the way and, and not, and not need it. Yeah, this was so nice. Fawn did a great, crazy thing like eight years ago. We went into, uh, we signed a deal with Universal Music. And before we did a band, everything we did ourselves. So only releasing the CDs ourselves, no label, nothing. And then with a major deal. And part of the deal was not even Universal Music. It was two of the biggest TV stations in Germany. Wow. And so what happened then, it went crazy. We got such a lot of criticism of fans. Oh, it's a sellout. And it was really difficult to combine it. But the positive thing we had a lot of people, we had massive TV commercial in Germany. And so there was a lot of people only watching TV, seeing this for the first time, like medieval music. Wow, this is crazy. And visiting other medieval markets. And this was so nice, seeing these people for the first time sitting on a bonfire again in the evening or watching the whole market. I could really see in their eyes, it was a big eye opener. And this is one of the aspects where I think it was really worth it because such a lot of people afterwards, they stayed in the scene because they thought, wow, I can really experience this kind of music, this kind of world, life. I can really dive into it. it it's such a shame that some people have that opinion where, you know, they, they, they find a band and they really like it. 
and I guess they want the band to do well, but then if the band does a little too well, suddenly, oh, you're selling out. And it's 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 such a shame that people get that opinion because you should want people to to find out about it and bring more people to the community. And you know, you should want you guys to do as as well as possible. It's not it's not necessarily selling out. It's more you can reach more, you know, the with that deal, like you said, you can reach more people. You can it opens more doors and hopefully brings more people to to you and then to to the community. To the, it works it, it works well all around. You know, the, I'm sure people at that festival will have done well. You know, like tra- market traders will have done well because you brought new people there that hadn't been there before, and hopefully some of them stuck around. Yeah, no, for sure. And that, that's the interesting thing, right? I mean, the the people who, for the first time, realize, oh, wait, there is this, you know, this this whole other world I can go to, <laughs> basically. They they get, um, I think they get such an added value uh, to life. It did, because you, I mean, what, what what is a Viking market? What is a medieval market? Well, it's a, you know, it's, it's a chance to get a little gritty, uh, get a little primitive, right? It's a chance to sit there by the bonfire, as you say, and drink, uh, drink booze out of a horn um, <laughs> or a, or like a clay cup or something like that. Eat with your fingers, and you know, just just doing some some basic things that you that you wouldn't otherwise do, right? So you know, people get um, as modern human beings, it, it, we're as we talked about before, we're sort of like stuck in a in this. Um, modern high-tech world, right? And we get a little uh, access to what we as human beings used to be when when we get to dive into those uh, scenes, right? No, but this is, then I started to say, it's not even enough to just, just start a bonfire. There's so much more. And I think after being in the scene for like 30, 40 years, many people here in Germany, they really started to search, hey, there must be something deeper. And now what became really big it's like a healing with plants. There's a whole old knowledge. It really comes back again. Or, for example, even getting this uh, religious aspects. Like for me, it was a few moments. Mm-hmm. For example, one was in Sweden. I had an old time, a very old Volvo back then from the 60s and driving in Sweden. And the car was so loud. It was a little stressful. I thought, oh, my God, I need a break. And in Sweden, you have everywhere this uh, science for like there's some historic side. And so I went there, and it was just a circle of birch trees, and in the middle there was a big stone, uh, flat stone, like the size of a human, and underneath there was something hollow. It was really strange. But what I did, okay, I said, this is, looks really nice. So I was lying flat on the stone. And then it was a, like a switch, and I was really, I was gone for 45 minutes. And it was a deep religious moment, and I don't know what happened there. I will never find this place again. But the feeling, wow, there is something. And even this whole ley line thing in the UK, for example, there is such a hidden knowledge and we slowly experience it again and trying to learn about it. Yeah, I think we've just, we just seem to be losing more and more in, of the touch with nature, you know, as, especially in the UK around the major cities. It just doesn't, doesn't seem to exist anymore. It, it, it's all very hustle and bustle. It's a hundred mile an hour. And I think... You know, for all the negative things that have come from the the whole coronavirus situation, yeah. I think some of the positives is that people have had the time, you know, especially in the UK, but I think the government, you know, they've taken a lot of criticisms, but one thing they did was to try and make sure that people who were employed were getting a percentage of their wage. 
so that gave people the freedom, you know, that they didn't have to go to work and they didn't necessarily have to worry about the money as much. So they had time to go out into to nature and kind of do things that they wouldn't have always had to do and spend more time with their family and hopefully reevaluate what's actually important. Yeah, that's good. I have I, I live at the edge of the forest here and I nearly every day I go into the forest. And just two days ago, I had a deer standing next to me, like one and a half meters, because the forests are so full of people, like people everywhere, because now they have the time to experience the forest again. And it was the deer, like, I gave up, I cannot run away. It's too much humans these days. It was just staying there. <laughs> we have a little bit of the same here. So, I mean, where, where I live up in the mountains and uh, uh, outside of Boulder, um, uh, so uh, Boulder is like the main city here. It's like north of Denver. Denver is, of course, the big city, right? Um, but but I live in the mountains in a small community, and um, you know we have we have moose and bear in the streets and stuff like that. <laughs> like we're 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 close to nature, but it's a oh, and at the same time we also have uh you know, so many people doing recreative, uh, recreative activities because Colorado is so big for that. You know, you have climbers everywhere, you have uh, people trail running. I'm, I will be one of those like in the mornings usually. <laughs> so that's in the forest running really fast? What's the trail running? Yeah, so the trail running is, uh, yeah, you uh, you run uh, in the forest on um, in the mountains, um, on, on the hills, you know. Um, there are so many well-designed trails all over um, Colorado, um, thanks to the uh, U.S. National Forest Service. Um, so they they maintain them really well, and uh, and and yeah, you can you can run on them. I I can't say that I'm I'm a I'm really good <laughs> doing it because it's really hard. <laughs> but um, but yeah, no, that's that's one of the things I like to do in the morning. But um, but yeah, so. So we have so many, uh, so much interaction, you know, between humans and nature here, and um, it's it's a big deal to people too. Um, people, I feel like um, Colorado is like a place where a lot of people have moved to from other places in the U.S. and usually from you know bigger cities or suburbs, and all of a sudden they come up here and then they get that experience of of like nature around them. And I think for many people, it's very transformative. They, you, you gain so much added quality to, to life uh, from doing that. And then, of course, you know, those of us who have been living here for a while, we start bitching about all the people who are moving here, even though we did that too. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh, there's so many people on the trails nowadays. So there's this constant push, like farther and farther west, where people are trying to find that remote spot where nobody else went. <laughs> no, but people are—it's everywhere in the world. People are running into the cities. Cities are getting more and more packed. And now with Corona, my hope was that people realize, hey, nature gives me a lot of content. Home office is possible. Everybody has internet. That it's a little bit relaxing this because cities are going more and more crazy every day. And it's it's beautiful on the countryside. I hope more people realize it these days, really. Yeah, and it's this is interesting. So um, we're three Europeans, and uh, the way that European cities are laid out is uh, are not that different, depending on whether you're in Germany, Denmark, or or the UK. Um, usually, you have a city center where things go on, and then you know, with uh, modern developments and everything nowadays, there's also you know these big 
shopping centers outside and, and all that stuff. But but generally with cities in Europe, it's centered around the center of the town, right? That's that's where you have the cafes and everything. But here in the U.S., it's it's very different. Like the way that the towns are, are laid out. Like um, as a European, I uh, and I when I was first in Denver, I, I did the mistake of going downtown trying to shop. <laughs> don't ever do that in the U.S. You go out of the downtown. Oh, really? like you, you find the malls outside. Yeah, because um, you know downtown is it's it's going to be much bigger than than any European downtown. Always, like it's it's weirdly hugely stretched stretched out and a lot of it is just like you know these big glass building where people work for some kind of corporation it's like nothing you can buy like you can't go take a stroll and sit at a cafe or anything like that it's like you have to like that stroll will be a couple of kilometers long then you can sit down (laughs) i mean so i would have done exactly the same thing i would have just gone straight to the downtown and looked for the Quirk, yeah, no. Look for the quirky little <laughs> coffee shops. Yeah, that's not how it works. You uh, you Google um, what mall is around, and then you go to that mall, and that's where you'll find whatever you need. We were nearly killed being pedestrians in America as a young man, you know, exploring the cities. But sometimes it's not even possible to walk. There is no walk and to cross the streets. There's no traffic light for pedestrians. So it really happened to us as well. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed it. it, it you don't walk in the cities here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine what it was like as a, like you say, as a, as a younger band just traveling around all these different countries. I mean, that must have been a, an amazing experience. Yeah, it still is. There's so many countries we haven't seen, and then we come for the first time. Now, for example, we're working on a booking in Turkey. We have like amazing follower following in Turkey. And it happens now finally for the first time and people are going crazy already. So, And this is so nice to have this um, experience. And I think it's not only our thing. It's also it's that the whole scene is getting more and more response and in more and more different countries, like Brazil, yeah. for example. It's a big... Uh, people are really identifying with the whole pagan community, with the whole uh, Viking community. Like after the concert where you give a few signatures, you see the most crazy Viking tattoos, full correct rune text. You think, what? This is crazy. Where do you get it from? People are really into it. And this is good. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. true. No, no, it's, uh, yeah, uh, Turkey and Brazil uh, are, are, yeah, exactly the places where, you know, uh, we actually have a lot of fans yeah. too. Yeah, Brazil. Um, people are listening to a podcast. And, Brazil is yeah. huge. And I've never, I mean, you may be able to explain why, Matthias, because I've never quite understood why there is there seems to be such a viking sort of culture in brazil so this it goes for all of south america um uh, like mexico brazil argentina um uruguay paraguay they have a lot of um um descendants from germans especially but but also from scandinavians they're actually uh, Argentina is uh, still has like like full fledged Danish speaking communities mm-hmm. where where like they're immigrants from Denmark that moved there like you know a century or more ago who are still speaking Danish um, and even have like Danish churches and I don't know what um, which is so weird I mean this 
this also exists here to an extent in America, but but we're on the last generation that still speaks Danish. Um, I think the Norwegians will probably still keep it up a little longer, the Swedes too, but the Danes, they're sort of like fizzling out at this point. Um, but it's, it's always curious to go to those kinds of communities as, as somebody from, you know, the modern country, because you you walk into like this pocket of time that like that stopped moving back 50 years ago or something like that. And you're like, whoa, this is like my great grandma's house or something like that. Um, but yeah, so th- those, those are some of the communities that exist in, uh, that still exist in these places. And a lot of people still have some identity tied to um, the the country of their uh, grandparents or great grandparents' origin, and and that's that's why um, they're they're reconnecting to to some of the things that um, that they uh, you know through generations um, have lost. Right, so. That's also why, I mean, there, there's plenty of German-speaking communities in, in South America. And also, um, I think a, it's a part of romanticizing also, of course, because uh, you cannot imagine how many female Facebook friends I have from, from Brazil, for example, named something Dottier. Okay. So it's it's a lot yeah. of those who say, I'm a shield maiden and blah, 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 I'm from Sao Paulo. I think, why not, you know? But it's, of course, the grass is always green on the other side. So they imagine yeah. no, that's, that's, that's definitely part of it. They imagine in Denmark only beautiful people with long hair and braided hair just walking the streets. <laughs> and if it was in the modern cities, they would say, "What the fuck is really modern here?" <laughs> but no, it's a so this is a it's a good point. Now, you know, we're dealing with a romanticization. Uh, people are romanticizing another culture, and we're all familiar with how we do that. Like, uh, I mean, we Europeans are. are Great at, Ameri- uh, at romanticizing America, yeah. for instance. Well, up until recently, I guess um, that might have changed <laughs> over the last couple of years. But but this is the you know that that's that's one of the the, the things that you see like uh, people romanticize America, people romanticize different places in uh, in in Europe. Like uh, India has also been a place that you know both Europeans and North Americans have romanticized a lot, right? And um, yeah, now we we're finding ourselves as like the the target of romanticization from from outside cultures, right? And that's how it always goes. And yeah, um, those things bring both good and bad things with them, right? Um, you know, the, there's always that problem of you know stereotypes being propagated in different ways, um, and you know. Some 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 things get lost in translation, mm-hmm. yeah, of yeah. course. But it's uh, but it's cool to see though that uh, that there are so many people that are so interested in in, in Northern Europe. I cannot complain as a musician. Like, I love romantic. <laughs> it's good. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No. No. I I I agree. It's like it's uh, there's nothing to complain about uh, as long as we we sort of like keep it with us reasonable sense of reality too because not everybody is shield maiden in scandinavia (laughs) sorry to say i mean so Matthias, i mean we were planning on traveling to to denmark for the first time we were going to go this year we're probably going to have to wait till later in the year or next year um so you mean when i get there i'm not going to find everybody like that south park episode of denmark where they're all kind of blonde haired singing singing around um i don't know if you've seen it but it's 
They're kind of like the troll hunters. Oh, that is that is that is that is kind of accurate. Is that what it's going to be? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It's a, you know any any country on the planet is uh, is has a certain level of diversity, and yeah, sure, you can you can always find the stereotypes of the country mm-hmm. that that you have been taught exist in it uh, if you look for them, um, of course. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think, um, uh, Denmark is, uh, um, you know, is, is, doesn't seem that different from neither Germany or the UK, if you ask me. It's a, it's a modern European country and, uh, you know, has the same, uh, cool things and the same woes as, as any other Western European country, pretty much. I have yes. to say, when, when I went to Sweden for the first time, it was like I was very young and I was totally romanticizing Sweden because I played the Nickel Harper, the key fiddle of Sweden, and I was listening to Garmana and Henningana folk bands and laughed like Astrid Lindgren, the books. And so I went over there with my Nickel Harper and it was very modern, the cities. And now I realize there is a beautiful, great scene, but it's very hidden. And even doing folk music mm-hmm. is in Sweden is kind of nerdy, you know? Playing medieval and old music—it's—it's yep. it's not a big thing. It's a very small community, actually. Yeah, no, that's true, and that's—I um, I think so. This has changed a little bit in recent years because Scandinavians have picked up on the fact that it's kind of cool outside of Scandinavia. So, so, so it's getting a little cooler nowadays. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, if you were into Viking stuff twenty years ago, you would be that geek <laughs> over there in the corner. <laughs> 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 yeah, I think I was gonna say I think Swedish women probably are the biggest stereotype because you always kind of expect <laughs> you know they're they're always portrayed you know these these blonde haired really beautiful women and I mean I've never been to Sweden but I presume it can't literally just be that everywhere. Uh, there is a so this is this is a secret that I as a Scandinavian will share with the rest of the world. <laughs> and the other Scandinavians will probably disown me when I uh, do it. But but there's a lot of people who dye their hair blonde in Scandinavia, just so you know. Oh, there you go. <laughs> you heard it here first. Oh. But there is a lot of girls in Scandinavia, I have to say. Yes. Well, there are all over the world, if yeah, you ask me. Absolutely. <laughs> So, uh, Oliver, I wanted to ask more about mythology because I would love to hear more like um, uh, what, where do you go for inspiration for, for songs and stories and um, religious experiences for that matter? Um, for me, I decided a long time ago that if I make a CD, I have a topic because it's so much nicer to dive into it. So uh, when we make a CD, we always have one uh, idea of a concept. For example, one CD was the female aspect of religion. Then we had another CD going into Nordic mythology. The latest CD we did was uh, taking German fairy tales and going back to the origins, where they come from, what's the old stories and the religion behind fairy tales. And now we're working on a CD right now that goes into paganism deep to say, hey, what is really the uh, sources of religion? Where is the crossroad with shamanism? And uh, mostly I do books, actually. Of course, it's by meeting people that's important. Um, but first, the first step is getting like eight or ten books and really going through. And then very often I contact the, the people who write the books and start to dig deeper into research. Cool. So, so um. So it is sort of like it is centered around uh, you know the the 
the northwestern part of Europe in terms of um, where you get your inspiration? You don't, do, you, do you go to Celtic stuff? Do you go to Greek and Roman stuff too, Slavic stuff? Or um, do, you, do you stay with that corner, so um, to speak? So far, it's always what inspires you and what happens to you. And so um, I also have another group going really deep into uh, Scandinavian Swedish music. And of course, via them, I met other really interesting guys. And so it's sometimes you can't decide even what's happening. It's just your path, you know, and you have to be open and uh, what happens to you. And then you take it as inspiration. In the past, we did sometimes we did some Roman stuff, some Roman uh, fertility rituals. We did a songs or some uh, Greek stuff. Last year, we had a journey to Lithuania. There's also in the Baltic mythology, there's a lot of great and interesting stuff. But it's still very new to me. And if I want to make a song, if I go into something, I want to do proper research and you need the right people to do so. So we stuck mostly, I think the main influence is the Germanic culture, the whole Scandinavian culture and the Celtic culture. This is the main inspiration I've found for the last five years, I would say. And there's so much to find also, you know, it's like... Um, once you start it, you think, oh, my God, but it's uh, once uh, the more you learn, the more you find also. And it's, 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 it's an endless road, I think. Although I have to admit, um, with the Viking culture, it's, it's such a boom right now. So it's a little bit there is not a lot of uh, text, actually, a lot of original text. And so this is a little bit is getting like where I think, OK, they did this already. And this is a topic they did already. And I don't want to repeat it too, too often. Yeah. Yeah, no, you you, you are, uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you you run into that problem of like, okay, so uh, that rune stone right there has been used and uh, that story and so on and so forth. That's true. Um, then you're, then you'll have to like figure out, you know, new creative ways to, uh, to, 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 you know, reuse it if you want to do that. Um, I mean, that, there's still there's still a lot, I, I would say, but but I mean, a lot of it is also not as accessible if you're not a scholar, right? Who reads the you know the original language or knows about this uh, cryptic stuff over here in the corner. So, but yeah, that's that's true. I mean, there's a, there's definitely you know one of the things that is uh, uh, that I've always been fascinated with um, as you know. A scholar in, of Norse mythology is is actually the Rhineland area, and um, the way that um, that the culture developed in the Rhineland area from like around the year zero and up to like uh, the three four hundreds, because it's such a mix. Like you have you know votive stones dedicated to Celtic gods, to Germanic gods, to Roman gods. You have uh, temples to a Persian god Mithras. Uh, you have temples to uh, Egyptian god Isis, right? And uh, you know all kinds of things are happening in that area. It's uh, it's just really fascinating, and that I I wish we had like real books about it, you know, written from that time, you know, that we could access. But unfortunately, there's not a lot of that out there anymore. But this I like so much about uh, polytheistic religions they would not mind, take the Vikings as an example, they wouldn't mind having Jesus Christ. Oh, there's another guy, let let let, it, let him come in, you know? It's so easy because it's yeah. polytheistic anyhow. And this really happened with the, with the Christianity or mostly with the politics of a Christianity to say, hey, there is one God and this is one king. And I think this was the biggest problem happening there. 
Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. What we had was, you know, even um, you know, a mandate to to believe in in Christ in a certain yeah. way. Some of the first uh, crusades they were directed against other Christians. So yeah, <laughs> that that was that was definitely the problem. The politics of Christianity. Exactly. And then that they wrote everything down, of course, because of the Celts. There is nothing to find written written down. It's so sad, actually. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, was, that's definitely something we we run across all the time on this podcast. Is is Mateus telling us that there isn't things written down, or we just don't, you know, we just don't know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or we can't we can't know exactly how people believed in it because I mean, you know, when it comes to the Nordic stuff, we have a lot of things written down, but we just can't always um, really count on these accounts being reliable. Um, the the best example are the the descriptions in the saga literature about um, ritual sacrifice. If you pick those descriptions uh, apart, you can see how the saga writers have borrowed things from uh, Jewish religion, um, and uh, there's probably elements of, of uh, Eastern um, Greek. Uh, sacrifice, uh, sacrifices too that they would be familiar with through other literature. Um, so, so then you're like, hmm, this this description might actually not be that uh, useful when it comes to understanding what would people do in, say, Norway in the 900s if they wanted to sacrifice a cow to Odin or whatever. You know? So, yeah. Yeah, but I think the more makes it important for us to reenact, to experience the things new, you know, and to to and this is why I'm so glad about the whole reenactment scene. It, I think it it is a big advantage for all the historians to say, okay, this is how this strange pot was used or something by experience it. Yeah, sometimes I guess that that unlocks unlocks some question, you know, some answers in just reliving it and and doing it, and you get a different perspective to it. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. No, there's a there's a guy in Denmark who um, wrote, uh, I think, an MA thesis on uh, Viking shields and their usage. Um, and so I I have not read the um, the, the thesis myself, but um, from what I understand is that he have, he has found that the way that the shields were constructed. And this is a reenactor, right? He he's been doing Viking re- fight, uh, fighting for. Uh, you know, a long time um and he he's saying that well if if the shields were constructed in the way that we have found them and all that stuff uh they the vikings wouldn't be able to do a shield wall uh these these shields wouldn't be strong enough for that they would have to use them actively as something that you like hit people with uh while you're also hitting them with your sword and your axe and all that stuff wow. right um, which which says a lot, yeah. That, that all of a sudden that's a that's a that's a portion of knowledge that we wouldn't be able to get by simply just armchairing it uh, as as scholars, <laughs> right? Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's something to be said to just doing sometimes, you know, just getting out there and and trying it out and figuring out and seeing seeing what works because you know sometimes you can't always just see everything just like say sat in an armchair and reading it in a book or or looking at pictures yeah no i mean that's um as a scholar of uh all of this stuff like some of the 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 things that inform me the most are these experiences i've had sailing viking ships and uh you know uh doing 
everyday stuff in in context of like Viking reenactment or you know I I once took a course at the Roskilde uh, Viking Ship Museum and how to uh, how to cut um, like wood elements uh, of of a Viking ship with an axe. It's really really hard to like like shape a little stick that's supposed to go into some, you know, part of a ship like with an axe. <laughs> but that's what these guys did. <laughs> they used axes for all of it. Um, so yeah, no, that, that, that was really like eye opening for me. Um, just like trying to, to use the, the, the tools and, and create, you know, whatever was a normal thing for, for people in the Viking age. Absolutely. Um, now, Oliver, obviously you play a bunch of different instruments. Uh, there was one when I was kind of like having a little read beforehand that stands out to me that I really want to know what it is. And is it called a bazookai? Bazooka oh, something? Bazooki. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bazooki. Yeah. To me, that just sounds like one of those things you put on your shoulder and fire little grenades out of or whatever. <laughs> No, it's 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 a little. Uh, I I could fill a full hour talking about this stuff. It's actually it's a lute, and you know, lutes were played all over the place. But of course, lutes were mostly played in the rabbit worlds. They were much ahead with the music. So, um, but then it happened. This instrument is actually made in the. Uh, it's a Greek instrument, a Greek eight-string lute called a buzuki. But then in really in the 60s, there was two Irish musicians making a holiday in Greece. That was Andy Irvine and Donna Lani. They still live. And they traveled to, to, Greek, uh, to Greece. And then they found out, oh, this is a nice instrument, actually. They were guitar players to play Irish music with. And so what they did, they cut it, uh, the, the round shape. They cut it off and made it flat. And so it has more bass now. And now it's called an Irish bazooki, but this is actually invented in the 1960s. But I realize it's very good for drone music because I use it with an open tuning. And then if you mix it with a hurdy-gurdy and the bagpipes, it has a beautiful power behind it. Cool. To be correct, I call it an Irish bazooki because it's the correct name. But it's a lute, a steel string lute that could have played by the old Celts or by any other culture. But it's actually a Greek word for it, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Obviously, I think I saw that you play the uh, the Swedish nickel harper as well, which yeah. is an instrument to me that, that boggles my mind every time I see you on or <laughs> see one played. It, it, it's beyond my musical talent, which is pretty much zero anyway. Now, this is one of the reasons I started to play it, because it looks so cool and it looks much cooler than it is hard to play. It's really simple to play, actually, as a guitar player. Because it's really sim simple uh, left hand. It's like a guitar, but you need to learn how to bow an instrument. So that's really good. And just to uh, Matthias, now I actually got an instrument from Denver, Colorado. That's so funny. Hmm. Yeah, because it's from it's the oldest instrument we have in the band now. It's from it's an original made from 1850. Oh, wow. There was an instrument maker. He was called August Pullman, and he was making banjos, but to look like a, like a lute. It's called lute banjo, a mandolin banjo. Okay. Banjo neck, actually. And there's only a few left in the world. And I got it last time I was in the U.S. and got it here now. And now we just, but we use it in a different tuning and we use it like a lute. So now we actually needed a name for it because we said it's, you know, Pullman banjo sounds stupid in a medieval band. And now it's really, we were, the last days we were talking about it because it's, it's very good in our sound. And some people call it a banjola, but it sounds too much like banjo because we use it otherwise. 
So now we thought about calling it a Pandora, maybe, because it's kind of mystic and something. I like it. <laughs> it's, it's always a search. You change instruments and change strings, and we work together with instrument makers as well. Yeah. So uh, sometimes you need to make a name for something that is just strings on a piece of wood, and it's just a name because... You know, I, w I was not aware of uh, it, this area having like its, its own uh, uh, music inventor. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool i don't know where he lived this august Pullman, but the instruments are amazing and now i have an instrument maker who wants to make them in europe again because it's such a great sound actually it's very beautiful it, it must have uh, some place in like the american bluegrass scene um this this type of banjo maybe but there is, there is really very difficult to find there's one maker who makes them in america still otherwise it nearly died out and i don't understand it it's beautiful and it took me really two months to find all the right strings for it now so we're really nerding around here so it really is me and another musician were sitting and trying strings and breaking a lot of strings but it's i think it's part of of what i love to do is also creating a sound and also working with the drones and creating this old sound that that resonates with something inside of you that makes images. So we, we like to tell stories in our music, but I think sometimes if I see a modern rock concert, I think it's beautiful how they play it. But of course, you know, it's, it's a guitar player, electric bass and a drum and a singer. And I think, okay, I know the first song, how the last song will sound because they never change. And with us, it's one of our um, things. We want to have every song paint an image, you know, of like uh, of sound. Like it needs to tell the story with the instruments you're using. And of course, I hate it when it's talking about traveling and having <laughs> uh, doing aeroplanes to have all the instruments. But I think it's part of what we love to do to have this sounds and creating uh, stories with the sound of instruments. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing for me that I, I mean, I'm I'm no music expert but one thing i i definitely kind of pick on with, up with your music is it's very it seems very kind of light and a little more uplifting than a lot of the, the kind of stuff you hear yeah. especially it's coming out in the more modern times in this kind of community and genre it's always it seems very heavy and and moody almost yeah, yeah, yeah. so that that's it's you know it's very nice to see something that's not there's not that yeah <laughs> Oh, you're saying you want to have a real party, not a Scandinavian party where everybody's just sitting around, just like moping. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it makes me want to. So you know, you obviously want makes me want to get up and kind of move. Whereas this, some of the stuff, it's you know, I'm not saying that the other stuff's bad. It's just it, it's very different. But it does. I have found that it does tend to be that kind of heavier, more moody style whereas with yours it's it's very kind of uplifting light and we're totally in between like here yeah, the booking agency that told me really the sentence one day hey festival means there's a fest there's a party you need to be more happy and something so for here for the german medieval scene we're already very dark and something really <laughs> because there's really dance and only upbeat and something and so here we're already very mystic and something but of course we work, we laugh also, we have two female singers, sometimes I sing, but we also love to have this entwined, uh, intertwined, like two female voices. And this gives mm -hmm. a little like this more mellow feeling. And, but I love it for, and this is good with us because we have so different singers. So if there's a song, sometimes it's a dialogue in the song, we can sing it together. Or if it's a more uplifting feeling, then the girls do it. 
So this is also part of our storytelling then. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you said earlier, if you, um, if you didn't, you don't think you would have made it as a musician if you hadn't have kind of taken the path you did. What kind of music do you think you would have tried to if, if this hadn't have, have, have worked out? Uh, for sure, I wouldn't be a professional because, as I said before, it's like without the medieval scene, without all the possibility of gigs, and you can just cover some songs at the beginning, you don't have a full repertoire, it's so much easier to start, like being a rock band and you s stand in small bars and something, it's so much more difficult. So I'm very, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm totally glad, glad, uh, thankful for, for the scene that really just helped me so much. And otherwise, I think I would have been a folk musician. I think folk, I only listen okay. to folk here. Yeah. Maybe really? folk, maybe English folk singer-songwriter. But uh, it would be a hobby for sure. <laughs> oh, see, see, I, I would have just gone for like a rock star, obviously. That's the obvious answer. Yeah, no. For me, I never listened to a distorted guitar. I don't know why. Really? Yeah. I, I, I grew up listening to, to rock music. That's kind of what what I was into, and, and a lot of punk music as well. Okay, well, most of the people did. I think I had an um, electric guitar, and it was, I don't know, in English, but it was, you, you could not tune it. It was so cheap, you could not tune it. So if you're tuning from the, the, the lowest string to the highest string, if you reach the highest string, the lowest string is out of tune again. So it was impossible. <laughs> so and that made me feeling, oh, electric guitars are crap, you know? They always sound, like, dirty, and so then I gave up, maybe. I don't know. It's it's funny how experiences like that can can change a path completely. You know, you pick something up, and you may just get a bad version of something, and it can completely change your trajectory in life. And you know, you go down a different path. Totally, totally. But also, while the other people went into discos here and clubs, I spent the nights in uh, bonfires in the forest, and that was important for me. If I play music, I want to travel my instrument and play it acoustic somewhere. And I think this was the biggest inspiration. So I started really singing ballads for friends at the bonfire. That's pretty cool. For me, one of my favorite bands would be Rammstein. And you know, they are, they're so, they're probably like the complete opposite spectrum to what you guys are. You know, it's very electronic kind of metal. And it's, you know, it's so different. Yeah. But they're good friends with Extremo even. This is a whole Berlin collection in Germany. So, so I think... It's not too far away even, but it's a different aspect. Like, I think we never put uh, electric guitar in and found because there's so many other bands doing it already. So we have the strong thing. We want to have more drums and the more pagan sound. Mm -hmm. But like in Extrema, they do exactly this. They have the wall of sound, the wall of electric guitar, and then the back yeah. part. Yeah. Yeah, no, they, have they not covered a couple of Rammstein songs or... Am I misremembering that, or maybe they did? I don't, they have they made so many CDs. Maybe they did. <laughs> they have made a lot of CDs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're really long in the business, even much longer than we are. Yeah, but they're really nice guys. I really like them a lot, actually. Yeah, I think I saw them um, maybe like in two thousand and nine or ten at yeah. the uh, uh, medieval festival in in Horsens in in Denmark. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't been there yet myself, but I heard about it. This is the biggest one in, in Scandinavia, as far as I know. Yeah, they're, they're okay. They're, but they're, they're, not, they're not my taste, <laughs> to be honest. Because it, it's exactly that like, wall of sound that's, that's not really working out for me um, in, in context of their, their style of music. Um, uh, because, I mean, uh, in other types of music, I really like it. You know, like black metal, I, I love that 
it's same same type of distorted <laughs> uh, guitar but um but yeah no that, that just doesn't work for me with uh with sort of like the medieval style no i'm also talking about music development i'm really happy about what's happening with like a vadruna now and heilung to have such a big focus on a bands who are kind of really spiritual in a way and really deep because i remember when we had a vadruna guesting on our midgard cd it's a couple of years ago already I really, I had really a hard fight with the label. They said, this is too obscure. Nobody wants it. I said, but this is really good. And this, and now they're really, they're growing and growing much. And this is, it's also for me because I say there is an interest in kind of spiritual and deep music. And now it's kind of an evidence and it opens many doors for us also. To say, you see, it's working. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's, that's one of the things that you're seeing. I, I mean, People who go to concerts with these bands, Heilung, Madruna. Um, what I'm, what I've seen here in the U.S. is that there is a lot of people who are having a straight up religious experiences when they're doing at that concert. Like, you know, and that's that's really impressive. I was at a when Heilung played in um, in Denver. Um, when was that? Uh, in January, I think it was. Um, just before the world went to shit <laughs> um <laughs> there there were people it's so the, the whole venue was packed like there, there was like people were like everywhere and people that come that turn from like kansas and nebraska and montana in in terms of miles is like driving from you know western france to poland <laughs> you know, so oh, wow. um, yeah, no, people had come from all over, um, and it was such a diverse crowd. There were people who were, you know, your your, your average um, stay home mom, uh, mm -hmm. and then there were like people like me with tattoos everywhere, and <laughs> you know, the whole range of people, and they were all. It it seemed like it, they were all like united by that whatever feeling they were getting from, from the music. Like, and, and for many, I, it was very obviously a spiritual feeling. I think you can um, kind of take that back to what we were saying earlier about when you signed with, with Universal. I think a lot of these big TV shows who have used sort of Wardruna and, and Highland music on, on it, it really helps get it out to another, out to the other audiences. You know, if he's, I know specifically I remember hearing Wardruna on, the Vikings TV show. And I imagine a lot of people will hear it. I think, well, you know, that's different. I like that. Get on the phone, start Googling. And, <laughs> or even, you know, you get these apps now, don't you, where you can just kind of put your phone up to the TV and it tells you what the song is. And it kind of opens up the, it opens up the market to a lot more people and, and a huge, more, more diverse audience. Yeah. I think this is winning the lottery for a band, of course, being in such a cool uh, TV series. Yeah. But then I have the feeling it's like people watch television, then they think, oh my God, I can dive into the world even more. I can see the concert of Adruna. And I hope that they're not stopping there. I hope that they go into the forest or go in medieval markets or Viking things and really dive in because there's a lot of experience there. And I have the feeling this really happens. It's not a fashion. It gives people identity in a way. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, so one of the things that uh, some like to make fun of here in America uh, is that, uh, you know, a lot of um, Americans who go to these shows, they're dressed like the people from Vikings. 
<laughs> or not a lot. There's a, there's, a, there's a decent percentage of people who are like, oh, that's Floki over there <laughs> and that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> and I mean, you can, you can, you can make fun of that. Uh, but on the other hand, I mean, I think, uh, you know, if this adds to the value of the experience that the, the person is getting, um, you know, go nuts with it, like have fun, do that. <laughs> Yeah. And yeah, go out in the woods afterwards. <laughs> you see a lot of that on, like, say, on on Facebook and things like that, where people will people will just attack people for getting things wrong, or you know, for for wearing what they see, and they will just kind of attack them. And it's disappointing because you could you could quite easily just put that person off from the scene completely just by you know by attacking them, and, and you just you know completely put them off, and that's it, and and that's their experience done rather than maybe speaking and just educating and, 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 and helping them find out the more accurate things. People really trying to be too authentic, that's always a problem if you're talking about TV world or not. But I think it reaches like, I had crazy experience in Italy, for example. Italy is very Christian. And when we were visiting some festivals there, like pagan festivals and played some really pagan songs, say this is about Beltane and something, there's such a strong response, and I think this is also you can experience. Like, it, 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 uh, it's 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 a seed even in some places where it's really rebellious even to do so. But then it's great, and I feel the response is even stronger. And of course, there's a TV series is a good door opener, as well as as other bands that are so successful right now. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. It's and it, it's it's interesting to see here in America too, because America is also a very Christian place in many ways. Yeah. Um, in a in a different way than we know it from Europe, but um, but there, the Christianity has such a stronghold uh, here, and you still have you know such a such a strong response to 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 this type of music and. Uh, that whole uh, pagan scene that, that that comes with it. There's a lot of people who get into that, um, even even if they you know would still consider themselves Christians. Yeah. No, and this is good about Vikings. I think even it took it serious for the first time to be a really the pagan belief or be what it means to be heaven in a way. And so that was really a strong topic then. I think this is secretly one of the main reasons why it got so successful and has such an identifying uh, aspect of it. Um, yeah, so let yeah, let's just wrap this one up. Um, like as always, it's been it's been amazing speaking to you, and you're always welcome to come back on. You know, in the future, we I'm sure we would be happy to have you again. Oh, thank you so much. That, that's a pleasure. So, um, have you? I mean. I don't know whether you've got anything coming up that you want to plug, you know, anything you want to, anybody listening where they can find you, follow you, follow the band. Um, Well, actually, just because it's a corona crisis and also for a band is really bad. um, We finished our our universal deal. The deal is over. So we're free now and we're signing to a new label. This gives us also the possibility to go much into darker music. So this is what we're working on the CD about paganism right now. And uh, we just released a song on Bandcamp. So if people want to check out phone on Bandcamp, they can listen to a completely new song that we just put out for the people because we have time, people have time. Yeah. What's the, what, do you know what the phone Instagram is? Uh, the Bandcamp page, I think it's 
bandcamp.fawn minus music or something. But if you Google or if you search on Bandcamp, you search for Fawn, you will find the song. And the song is turned in. It's a very old ballad, an old Scottish ballad, actually, about a young boy who was robbed by the Queen of the Fairies. Wow. Yes. Um, Matthias, obviously everyone can find you. Yeah, just cover my name. You'll find me. You know, I have my website. I have my YouTube channel. You can find me on Instagram by my name, you know, (laughs) and the Nordic Mythology channel, of course. So, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Oliver. This was a really interesting conversation, and I uh, really liked it, hearing your perspective on these things. Yeah, thank you. And like I say, um, hopefully, especially when if you guys are going to release a new album um, at any point, we'd, we'd love to have you back on, and we can chat, and we can chat about the album, where you know the direction you've gone with it, and and hopefully plug it to a few people as well. Lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.